as we walk into the year of awakening, it is a long, hard, difficult look in the mirror and realizing, wow, it's not, we're not living the way we ought to be. And through the book of Isaiah, we're going to watch God come alive in this massive, grandiose way. Isaiah talks about God as if he is the center of everything. Guess what? He is. He lives as if God was all there is. That if God was a central person in the storyline and not himself. He writes as if everything is about God's plans and not his plans. We know very little about the man because he didn't care about talking about himself. He cared everything about talking about his wonderful, beautiful, amazing God. So indeed, this year we're going to go through three books. The majority is going to be in the book of Isaiah, and it's going to be an exciting walkthrough. I've never taught the book of Isaiah from the pulpit, and so we're going to go through this together. Is it over my head? Of course it is. So what? We'll learn together. But what I would love for you to do is begin to read it for yourself. Every time you see something in there that catches your attention and you went, wow, I know that. Or, oh, I can't believe he said that. Or that's a powerful one. Or I got to write that one down. I want you to highlight it or underline it. And what you're going to find is that the book of Isaiah is far more familiar than you ever imagined. We are still too driven by our culture. As a matter of fact, if you would take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, I want to draw your attention to fill in the blank. And as you're grabbing that and your Bibles, there should be one under the seat in front of you. I would like to read something to you because I believe it is true for us. We are not seeing God right. We are not seeing ourselves right. We are not seeing reality right. The Bible says that God is in control and that he will provide. But we still worry. The Bible says that God doesn't tolerate sin, but we do it daily. The Bible says that we are fragile, that our time is short, but we live as if we are invincible. The Bible says that Satan is an enemy of God, but we partner with him all the time. The Bible says that anything that's placed above him in our priority list is idolatry, but God doesn't even hit our top five. The Bible says that prayer and faith moves mountains, but we utilize neither. We walk through this world as if we were in charge, that we have all the time in the world, that what we deem important is important, and that there are no consequences for our apathy. Israel thought the exact same thing. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. The world is not what we assume. The world is not what we assume. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1. It is page 566 in the Bibles that are here under the seats. 566. We are merely going to read the first two verses because any time we walk into a book in the Bible, we must always get a context. Remember, we are opening ancient mail, someone else's mail. Therefore, you have to ask the question, why do we care? Why is it in there? Why did the author write that down and not something else? What do we need to know in order to have it come alive to us? What background, what context? 
Who's the audience? Who's the author? What time period are we in? What was going on in the world situation at that time? These we're going to study this morning. If you are interested in taking notes, I would encourage you to do that. I want you to write it down because every one of my messages are slightly different. However, I will be posting these notes of the launch on the city this afternoon. I will make sure that you have what you need to lock in. I want you to always reflect back on it so you don't feel lost throughout this series. Because the book of Isaiah is a little bit crazy. It's crazy for a variety of reasons, but one of them is it's not necessarily chronological, and it jumps around and it repeats concepts over and over. It's a lot of judgment and a lot of grace. But they're so swirled in there together It's a little difficult to track on. So I'm going to give you some basic concepts this morning. I want to begin with just reading Isaiah 1, 1 and 2. And then we will pray for the word and finish the message. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for an amazing, beautiful day to sit at your feet and learn that God, if you want to cause or allow any types of those crazy distractions that we wouldn't fall into the same routine or boredom or rut. God, that you would awaken us and bring a new perspective, then let it be so. Father, as you bring revival into our land, as you shatter our region, as you draw people to ask us questions and propel us outside of our comfort zone, may the words of Isaiah saturate our spirits and may we learn more and more about you. God, reveal yourself to us that we might worship you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Tell you a little bit about why Isaiah is such an unusual book. First of all, we are going back to around his birth, which is somewhat estimated at 760 B.C. So therefore, we're going to go back our 2013 years down to zero, then count backwards out to 760. We are going back to an ancient document over 2,700 years old. He was born when Jonah was wrapping up his ministry. Everybody remembers the swallowed by the whale guy, right? It's actually swallowed by a large fish. That guy was going to what city? Anybody remember? The city of Nineveh. Now, he didn't want to go there. You're going to hear a lot about Nineveh today. As Jonah, who hated those people, had God force him to go there, and he actually preached to them, and God was working with that empire, as pagan as it was, they actually, in the city of Nineveh, had a revival. But they were too godless for it to hold for too long. And things didn't last for much longer. Isaiah was born and preached and ministered at the same time as three other prophets, Amos, Hosea in the north, and Micah, and Isaiah ran the south. So if you read those books in the Bible and you go, hey, these guys, they were contemporaries. They lived at the same time. Isaiah, by word count, is the third longest book in the Bible. 
It comes after Psalms and Jeremiah. It is the first listed of all 17 prophetic books, even though he didn't come first. It has been known as the mini Bible. It has 66 chapters. The Bible has 66 books. It's broken into two logical chunks. One speaking of judgment that has 39 chapters to it, just like the Old Testament has 39 books. And it has 27 that speak on hope and future, just like 27 New Testament books. He was an incredibly popular guy in the New Testament. Isaiah's name is mentioned 22 times in the New Testament, quoted over 65 times more than any Old Testament prophet. Paul the Apostle quotes or refers to Isaiah in excess of 80 times. Jesus quoted him as well. But in Isaiah's mind, the only one that matters is God. He uses the personal name of God, Yahweh, over 300 times. He knows his God. He speaks for his God. He lives for his God. He is entirely wrapped up in who God is. Being born around Jerusalem, likely being tied into a royal family, he receives some of the greatest education that was around. The Hebrew in the book of Isaiah is second to none. It is stellar. He is known because of how it is written as one of the greatest writers of the entire ancient world at that time. He's that brilliant. It uses a larger Hebrew vocabulary than any other book in the Old Testament. He knows what he's doing, and it's written beautifully. It is the third heaviest book for prophetic predictions after Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It prophesies not just about Isaiah's day, but hundreds of years forward into the future, and then a few hundred years more into the future, and then talking about the Messiah that would happen 700 years in the future. And it still has prophecies in it that are yet to be fulfilled. It is loaded with prediction, loaded with the prophetic. And it is most familiar for how it talks about our Lord Jesus. If you've ever heard the phrase, by his stripes we are healed, that's Isaiah. When you hear about the suffering servant and you think about Isaiah 53, that's right here in this book. The whole time as you turn around, you're going to go, I know that, I know that, I know that. It almost seems like a New Testament concept in an Old Testament book. So who was this guy? Who is Isaiah? It says that he was the son of Amos. Tradition says that his dad and the king, when he was born, were brothers. Now, was that true? Well, it's unsubstantiated. But it would make sense why he has access to the royal court. Somehow he was part of a royal family, but we don't know how. He was from the tribe of Judah, according to tradition. He was south through and through. He was, as I said, highly educated. He was married and had two children. Oddly enough, his youngest boy has the longest name in the entire Bible. Strange, really weird name. His ministry lasted at least 58 years. That's a really, really long time. And it would have gone even longer if it wasn't cut short. But make no mistake, this was not a man shouting at everyone else being wrong. He was a patriot. He loved the Jewish people with everything he had. He had a corporate identity. He uses the phrase, my people, 26 times. 
So when you hear him wail on them and talk about where they need to repent and talk about the horrors that are going on, he would say, we have sinned against you, God. In our 40-day fast, our prayer prompts have been about repenting, not just for us, but for our community. Repenting not only for our church, but for our neighbors, people that don't even know God yet. We are repenting and saying, God, collectively, we as people in the greater Sacramento region have shoved you out. Forgive us. Isaiah knew that. And indeed, tradition has that somewhere after 681 B.C., under one of the worst kings of the southern territory of Judah, he was killed under King Manasseh by being sawn in two with a wooden saw. It is believed that the book of Hebrews, when it refers to those that were being sawn asunder or sawn in two, it's referring to this man, Isaiah. He lived for God. He died for God. What an extraordinary man. If you could throw up that map, I'm going to draw your attention to this, and I'm going to teach you a little bit about history. took me a while to kind of get my head wrapped around this, but let's make it as simple as possible. On this map, there's a lot of cool things written up there. You can see Tarsus, where Saul was born, all these things. Now, I have the world's brightest pointer, and I'm going to use it a lot because it's fun. Okay. If I shine it off the drum shield, it will kill you. So I'm going to try to aim up here. Now there's only a few things you need to know on this map. We could talk about everything else. Let's focus on only the core issues. The main one for our stories is the nation of Assyria. There are two nations I'm going to referring to that sound the same. Assyria and Syria. I know it's stupid, but it's in the Bible. Assyria is a growing during Isaiah's day. It is a growing superpower that began to take over the known world in that region. On this map, it shows you how far they extended their rule and it kept getting bigger and bigger. So you're going to hear about them a lot. The Assyrians. You will also hear a little bit about the Babylonians. They are kind of superpower, not superpower, superpower. They're in and out. Egypt, another big deal down in the south. Those are your three big dogs, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt. In the middle of everything, you have Israel, Judah, and Syria. They are kind of like the little guys on the block. Every time the superpowers wanted to beat on each other, they just stomped across those guys on the way through. They were side notes. Why in the world would God put Israel right here in the center of all the major superpowers? Well, I don't know. Why are they still in the news every day? Why are they in the center of the Middle East, which happens to have the oil fields, which happens to control a good margin of our economy in the world? Why is it that whenever Iran is mentioned, Israel's mentioned, Iraq is mentioned, Israel's mentioned? The whole Palestinian conflict. Why is it that the whole world has to keep dealing with this little tiny country that shouldn't even factor? Because God put them in the middle for a reason. They are to be the salt and light to the world. They failed in that mission. And God is redeeming them. I ask you this. This is not the message today, but you can take this one home. Why did God put you where he put you? You think that's an accident? 
You think you're at the school that you're in. You think you're at the job that you're in on accident surrounded by difficulty you think that you're in the family that you're in and all these pressures and craziness and you go why am i the only believer why am i the only one that's hanging on and trying to be true everyone else thinks i'm an idiot well now you know how israel feels because god tends to sprinkle his salt where it's needed the most right in the darkest place so here's how history goes isaiah got to see the rise and the death four kings the first king that he was under reigned for 52 years that's a long time his name was king uzziah he started out so brilliant he took to the throne at 16 years old and he tracked with god he was so amazing and powerful and charismatic he was a man of the fields of the land he was a man of war he was a builder he was incredible as a matter of fact it says this and he did what was right in the eyes of the lord he himself set himself to seek god in the days of zechariah the prophet who instructed him in the fear of god and as long as he sought yahweh god made him prosper And sure enough, he took territory, he fortified Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, he poured money into innovation, and under his watch, he created war machines. He knew that Jerusalem would be the central place that Assyria would attack. So he paid guys to come up with a concept of being able to catapult and launch boulders and arrows from a distance from the top of the city walls. He did extraordinary things. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. If you are thriving or successful in this life, I want to tell you why. You are marvelously helped. No, I didn't. I work for it. I know you work for it. But a lot of people are working for a lot of things. Most people are working harder than you. You are marvelously helped. The problem is, is the last line. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. So great. For 40 years, this guy rises and rises and rises. But what happens when you're the big dog over everything? What if you're part of the nations that while Assyria is busy with their internal conflict, fighting Babylon, trying to get their head in the game, not having great leadership. And meanwhile, there in the Israeli territory, you're nation of judah the south and north have split after solomon they don't even like each other and so everything isaiah did was in the south in the area of jerusalem the south hated the north the north hated the south but even during that time they kind of had a peace treaty and underneath uzziah judah was rising and becoming more wealthy and it says his fame spread all the way down to egypt and everything was awesome everybody did everything right At some point, you get too proud to bow down. So he walks into the temple one day and decides that he's going to offer sacrifices. What's the problem with that? Kings don't offer sacrifices. That's for the priests to do. Priests? Who are they? They work for me. They're my grunts. I can walk in and I can do whatever I want to do. I'm the king. I run this nation. 
everybody is successful because of me. If I want to offer a sacrifice, I offer a sacrifice. Don't tell me what I can and can't do. He walks up and all the priests who were, quote, men of valor, meaning they're ready to die for this. These guys are tough as nails. They said, King, you don't want to do this. We will give you an out. You will never be exposed for this, but don't touch the altar. I'm warning you right now. It's not about you being bigger than us. It's about you going against God. Don't touch it. It was a whole drop the sacrifice back away from the altar kind of thing, right? And he said, you don't understand. I'm in charge. I'm the man. And all of a sudden they all looked at him and backed up. Why? Because leprosy broke across his forehead. And God said, you are who? I don't think so. I'm in charge. I gave you what you have. Who do you think you are? Are you that cocky and arrogant that you would defy me? I set the rules. How dare you walk into my temple, touch my sacrifice, touch my altar, get in your role. I put you in a role. Stay with it. You are not God. I'm God. You're not. For the last 10 years, he was no longer allowed to serve. The men would not allow a leper to lead them. His son, Jotham, stepped into the role, and for 10 years, they had to be co-kings. And he died a leper. What a horrible ending to a brilliant career. Why? Pride. It seems to take down the best. When Jotham gets into power... Everything starts spinning out of control in the world. The north begins to attack the south. The north starts partnering with Syria. They start fighting the south. Everybody's attacking each other. Everything's disrupted. And so, sure enough, King Jotham doesn't even know what's going on. The next king comes into play. He serves for 16 terrible years. He is named King Ahaz. Assyria gets a brand new leader, the most charismatic leader they've ever had. He goes through and starts for world domination. Along the way, he starts putting pressure on these two, the north and Syria. They try to pressure Judah to be part of their team. Judah says, I don't want to be part of your team. I'm going to do my own thing. They said, really? We'll attack you and put in a king that will work with us. So they start attacking him while Assyria is attacking them. This whole thing is ridiculous. It's chaotic. Judah, despite Isaiah's pleas, makes a pact with Assyria. Well, that was smart. He goes around and makes a pact with the bad guys who gladly signed that treaty. They come through and start blowing out all these things. They capture Damascus, the, the capital of Syria. They start attacking. They take all the Galilee region. They take Gaza, the Gaza Strip. They're blowing things up as this huge monolith comes through, mowing down everything in front of it. The king changes. In comes a new king by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a good guy. Hezekiah, in 715 BC, takes the throne. Unfortunately, by the time he gets there, Assyria takes out the north. They took Samaria, the capital, in 722 BC. And there were no land in the north until our generation. That's how long this lasted. 
It wiped out the north and they went into exile. When they replaced people from their territories out here, that's where you get the Samaritans from. Everybody know when Jesus' day came up and they had that area in the middle that were half Jews? It all came from this issue. Because when you take out a bunch of Jews, you've got to replace them with somebody. They replaced them with pagan people from another land. And now you have a half-breed. And the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. It's all from this. Sure enough, Hezekiah takes a throne in 715 BC. He is a man of reformation. He brings back in Judah the heart of God. Because they realize that the only reason they're not taken over by Assyria is because when they came down to storm it, Underneath Hezekiah, they came in with 185,000 warriors coming up to storm Jerusalem. Isaiah said, Hezekiah, you're a man of faith. Hold. Ahaz didn't listen to me. Jotham didn't listen to me. You are a good man. Listen to me. Stay strong in your faith and God will prevail. There, the siege was being launched. 185,000 Assyrians camped right outside the walls to take it over. But Hezekiah held strong. I believe you, God. That night an angel was sent and slaughtered all 185,000 Assyrian warriors. How tough are angels? Pretty tough. Now, it goes through, wipes them out. Assyria backs up and never attacks them again. Who was the capital of Assyria? Right there, Nineveh. Unfortunately, the story does not stop there. Hezekiah has a terrible disease. He's going to die. He calls out to God and begs for God's favor. God gives him 15 extra years. What was the sign? He backed the sun up. The shadow on the stairs went backwards. And he gave him a sign that I'll give you 15 more years. Unfortunately, Hezekiah didn't use it very well. During that time period, Hezekiah invites Babylon to come over to visit. They gave him good get well cards and presents and stuff like that. He invites them in and shows them around. 200 years later, Babylon comes in and storms and takes the south. Isaiah not only writes about his day, but the 200 years forward when Babylon will take the south. He not only writes about that, he writes about days even more future and more future and more future of today. Here's the bottom line. Israel had a couple problems. There's a reason why judgment came upon them. Their problems were these. Pride, unbelief, and injustice. Is it not timely for our day? Why do we believe that we get to live however we want to live. Where did we get the idea that we're going to pick and choose when we serve God and when we don't? When did we slide in our discipline that if God calls us, we can't even answer the phone? Israel was designed to be the salt and light, the servant of God, to go out and tell the non-Jews, the Gentiles, of who God was. They got caught up in their own drama. They didn't share their faith. They got completely wrapped up in their own situations, turned inwardly focused, became corrupt, and didn't do anything. That's what's happening to the church today. 
We've been called to be salt and light. We're not doing it. We're so wrapped up in our own problems, our own drama. We're not sharing with our neighbors. 93% of people in our region don't even know who God is. Don't even go to church. It doesn't bother us. We got too many issues in our own marriages. We have too many issues in our own household. We don't like our jobs. We don't like our financial situation. And we spend all our time complaining. Israel did the exact same thing. And so God brought judgment on them to wake them up. Is that what we need? What's so beautiful and brilliant was that God didn't leave the situation bleak. He talked about the one servant that would come and on Israel's behalf do it right. The suffering servant Jesus Christ came as a Jew and fulfilled everything the father asked him to do. He was the redeemer, the chosen one. And he told them, you have a future. I've not abandoned you forever. So my message for you this morning is that this year he's going to wreak havoc and he's going to rebuild and he's going to tear down and he's going to build up and it's going to be all over the map. He will be grabbing things in your little lock closet of your mind that you think nobody knows about and he's going to break it open because he is not content to leave us as we are. If indeed revival hits our land and our people come to us, our neighbors say, teach me, lead me, guide me, disciple me, train me. Are you going to try to hand them off to somebody else? That's unacceptable. There's too many of them that will come. You lead them. Don't hand them to anybody else. You do it. You're a child of God. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You've been trained and trained and trained. You know more than most missionaries throughout the world. You know enough. It is now time to live it. It is now time to do it. Therefore, this year, we're going to wake up and realize, boy, things need to change. I'm going to close in prayer, and I need you to stay for the closing video because it has a few things we need to consider. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. That, Lord, distractions are not, you are beautiful. And you have showed us, Lord, that you are mighty and powerful. And through this book, I ask, God, that you'd make it come alive. That, Lord, that we would become more and more like Isaiah, willing to do anything, even the absurd, if you asked us. God, would you captivate us in a bonfire of excitement. That, Lord, that you would light us aflame by your Holy Spirit. That we might be able to be excited and laser-focused on your vision. That when you call for this region to be ministered to, that Bridgeway would answer that call and be ready to do it. God, join us with the other churches. Allow us to encourage them. Allow us to love on them. Allow us to build them up. Lord, that your leaders might be strong and mighty, faithful and obedient. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.